Welcome to Lumpen Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on Lumpen Radio. This week, we discuss sexism in sport, learned about the death of an American newspaper, and planned for a busy summer and fall in the arts. All this plus the latest from Eureka Cast Now, The Biden Files, and much more. It's the Lumpen Week in Review for July 9th, 2021. The boys from I-94 spoke to Julie DeCaro, a reporter and author of Sidelined. DeCaro chatted about her experiences in sports journalism, being harassed by the fans of Barstool, and why Twitter is both horrid and indispensable. I-94, Lumpen's Books and Literature show, airs every Thursday and Sunday at 11 a.m. One of the things about sports is that it is political. And yet one of the things that's often used to shut down people is to keep politics out of sport, keep gender out of sports. And I wonder if we could start there, because I've always thought, you know, as a former sports reporter myself, that that was a a grotesque misreading of what sports actually mean to society. Yes, I, I I would say, you know, for me, I sort of start the book with Melissa Ludke's landmark uh, decision, landmark uh, legal decision that she could go into the locker rooms right, 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 uh, right. when she had to sue Major League Baseball and Commissioner Bowie Kuhn and able to be able to do her job. So that's sort of where we start. Um, but, you know, I was in college in the 90s and I looked at Pam Oliver, Andrea Kramer, Melissa Isaacson, Leslie Visser. And and there weren't a ton of other women outside of that, or at least that I was aware of. So it's always been a difficult industry for women to break into, in part because I think we've always acted as if sports belong to men. And if women are interested in them, they are interlopers and they're forcing themselves into an industry where they really don't belong. When in fact, you know, I mean, I had a mother who in the 50s and 60s went to summer sports summer camp every year, played a million sports. Um, I'm a daughter of Title IX. I was born after Title IX was enacted. And I, I, you know, my entire childhood was sports and all the way up through college. Um, So, you know, this idea that sports belong to men and men should do the main reporting on it is just wrong and uninformed. And then the other aspect of that is you're right. Sports have never not been political, whether we're talking about, you know, all the way back to even before, but um, back to Jack Johnson, the boxer, back to um, baseball being integrated before a lot of America was integrated to uh, Muhammad Ali bringing the discussion about the Vietnam War into people's living rooms, Billie Jean King fighting for gender equality and later equality for the LGBTQ community to the Black Lives Matter movement that we have, you know, going on right now and that we saw so prominently last summer in the sports world. So this idea, when people say stick to sports, what they really say is, you know, what they're really saying or they want the politics out of sports is they want politics they don't agree with out of sports. So they're perfectly happy to have the the U.S. government pay a fortune to NFL teams so they can have flyovers and an enormous American flag and bring out all the troops and have everyone clap and applaud like that is fine. But if you bring up the opposing point of view, they want that out of sports. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And, you know, it's interesting because let's get back actually to the Major League Baseball case. The when, locker room case. The locker know. room case. Yeah. You know, when um, I, the sport that I covered was was international soccer and international soccer has never allowed reporters in the locker room at all. Right. Um, However, in America, and I remember quite vividly in 1994 when the World Cup came here, um, they realized that they were going to have to let reporters in the locker room. And there was a big to-do behind the scenes about uh, letting in reporters 
in general, number one, and then letting in female reporters in number two. And all that had to be smoothed over by FIFA. And in fact, they came up with a bizarre compromise, which still exists to this day, called a kind of a mixed zone where they parade the players as if they're, you know, on a fashion runway down yeah. a rope. And then you can yell questions at them and, and get nothing out of it. <laughs> One of the interesting things, though, about the locker room, and I think it's it's worth talking about today, especially in an era where... People such as Naomi Osaka, who's a great example, have kind of pointed out that some of these press conferences are useless and we don't get anything out of them. The era that you started out discussing in your book, the locker room actually was extremely important. And it mm -hmm. was critical for women to be in there uh, because that was where the stories were told. I think people need to think back and remember there was no internet. You know, most of the games, baseball games were being carried on radio. There wasn't necessarily a lot of national television. And unless you were in the kind of daily beat grind and in those locker rooms at practice, you not only didn't get access, you didn't get any sources. Correct. Uh, you know, it's a weird thing. Nobody, I don't think, really wants to be in the locker room. Like, personally, I find them disgusting. And it's the only in, it's the only industry in this country where we interview people while they're naked. I mean, it's, the whole thing is bizarre. <laughs> but you're right. I mean, especially when Melissa Ludke was covering the Yankees, Back in 1975, uh, you know, that was Billy Martin versus Reggie Jackson, and they were jawing at each other in the locker room. And she had to be there for that because that's where her male colleagues were. And, you know, she took a lot of heat for people saying she wanted to be in the locker room because she wanted to see naked men or she was a loose woman. And that's why she wanted to go in the locker room. When, in fact, you know, it was baseball that decided that that's where these interviews take place. But if that's where they're taking place, then, you, then women have to be there, too. You, you can't just... Um, you know, assign it to the men. So uh, it, it's a weird situation. Frankly, I wish they'd come up with something better, but no one has yet. No. Yeah. Well, uh, can you talk about the the negotiation process? And, and, and it's ongoing. It's not just back in 75. It seems to, to continue to this day that the negotiations about uh, journalist access, female journalist access to the locker room, or just spheres of, of influence and power and, and information, it, the negotiations don't seem to operate under good faith. You know, there, there's not a whole lot of directness. There's, um, there are these strange ex excuses and accusations thrown around for, for why women shouldn't be able to be allowed in the locker room or, you know, should stick to the sidelines or whatever. Can you talk a little bit about uh, that strange form of communication? Yeah, I mean, I think that, I mean, the number, the name of the game, no matter what kind of reporter you are, is access, right? And, um, you know, sports media, especially if you work for a station, is a weird mix of sales and editorial, right? So you don't, you don't do things just because they're journalistically or ethically the right things to do. Everything is sort of based around how you make the outlet look, how you make baseball look, how you make whatever sport it is look. Um, you know, women, I think, are still subject to the same criticism that that they the women received back in the day, that you just you're the only reason you care about sports is because the guys are cute and you only want to go in the locker room because you want to see them naked. Um I mean, that that's still out there. Um, you know, this idea, I remember when Cam Newton said to Jordan Rodriguez, like, it's just weird to hear a woman talking about routes. And I was sort of like, well, where have you been for the last 30 years, Cam? Because women have been covering football for, for quite some time. And I know he's heard 
women say things like that before. Um, you know, one of the problems with calling out that behavior, and, and I've certainly, you know, I had a lot of women in this book tell me specific players that had harassed them in the locker room, that I think people would be pretty shocked to hear some of these names. A lot of them are, or some of them are notable good guys in the NFL um, who have done things like, you know, waggled their genitalia in their faces and stuff like that. And um, you can't call it out and you can't really do anything about it because first of all, your employer doesn't care. And, and second of all, um, you risk losing access. So if you, you know, say, Hey, this, this player did this to me in the locker room, like Lisa so bravely did years ago, um, you know, then it's, it's not unheard of for them to say, well, you know, the team to say, well, guess what? No one from your outlets coming in our locker room anymore because you made us look bad. So um, it, it's a very weird space for women to exist in where you sort of are constantly judging your mental health against doing the right thing and wanting the world to know what's happening. Um, I, I think it's getting much better. Certainly the, um, the, the younger generation of players coming up, um, I've never had a problem with them. I mean, I think they're used to seeing women there. It's not unusual for them. They come into the league knowing there's going to be women in the locker room. Uh, but, you know, some of the guys around baseball still have a hard time wrapping their minds around it. And, and not just baseball. I mean, every sport. And I think we've seen that pretty clearly with Jared Porter and Mickey Calloway and the Washington football team and, and all these other guys that have recently been called out for horrible behavior. Sports Illustrated decided they weren't going to allow Kuhn's decision to stand. In 1977, they filed a lawsuit in federal court under the title Melissa Ludke and Time Inc. Plaintiffs v. Bowie Kuhn, Commissioner of MLB et al. Time Inc. was the parent company of Sports Illustrated. There's a great video in Let Them Wear Towels of a 26-year-old Melissa Ludke sitting with Howard Cosell explaining why she needed access to locker rooms. The decision came down on September 25, 1978, with the federal district finding that Kuhn's decision violated Ludke's 14th Amendment rights of equal protection and due process, including her right to pursue her profession. The court held that Ludke had been treated differently from her colleagues based solely on her gender. That decision applied only to the New York Yankees and Yankee Stadium, but it put other MLB teams on notice that their policies had to change. When Peter Uberoff took over as commissioner in 1984, he opened up MLB locker rooms to women across the board. Though pro sports leagues were starting to mandate that women have locker room access, that didn't mean the players were on board. And while pro sports teams had to allow women into the locker rooms, they didn't control what happened once they got in there. It was baseball that made the decision that the interviews took place in the locker room, Ludke told me. If they don't want anyone in the locker room, including the men reporters, that's okay with me. My lawsuit was about equal access. It wasn't about whether I got to go in the locker room or not. It was saying that whatever access they gave to the male reporters, they have to give that same access to the women reporters. It means how the men report the story is how the women report the story. So baseball had a tradition that the male reporters were in the locker room. That's where they went to interview the players. And so if you wanted to get the immediacy of responses, if you wanted to see what was happening between players on that team after the game is over, if you wanted to have exposure to that, you're in the locker room, Ludke continued. When most people pick up their newspaper or see a broadcast, they don't know how that reporter has gotten the story. They don't really think much about how that happens. Ludke's point was, for all those who accused her of wanting to see naked men, she wasn't allowed in the locker room before the game started when the players were all fully dressed in their uniforms. If that were truly MLB's motivation, it was a simple fix, but one they declined to make. The only way male reporters wanted to play this story up and the way baseball wanted to play it up was sort of question my morality and wanting to be in a place where I might see a man who was naked. 
I was accused of wanting to leer at men's bodies, but there were no bodies to leer at in between batting practice and the game starting, so why wasn't I allowed in then? But that wouldn't have been as sexy of a story, and I wouldn't have been portrayed as the sort of wanton woman, Ludke told me. But as I said, once women made it into the locker rooms, pro sports pushed back by often making no effort to control what happened in those locker rooms. While playing for the Detroit Tigers in 1990, pitcher Jack Morris infamously said to the Detroit Free Press's Jennifer Frey, I don't talk to people when I'm naked, especially women, unless they're on top of me or I'm on top of them. Before her death in 2016, Frey would tell friends of other run-ins with Morris, including the times he called her a bitch and the time Kirby Puckett allegedly had to keep him from physically attacking her in the Minnesota Twins locker room. After his baseball career ended, Morris went on a broadcasting career and was elected to the Baseball Hall of Fame by the Modern Era Committee in 2018. Lisa Saxon, who covered the then-California Angels for the Los Angeles Daily News, told Boston radio station WBUR, Going in the locker room, knots would get in my stomach. It actually is a physically uncomfortable thing to do because you didn't know what you would face. And at the very least, you would have jock straps thrown at you and dirty undergarments. And that was an everyday occurrence, and then you would just build onto that what might happen, and you just hope for the best when you went in. The wonderful Claire Smith, the first woman in America to have an MLB beat, she covered the Yankees for the Hartford Current, and the first woman writer and only fourth of African-American writer to be inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame, told a story and let them wear towels about standing in the hallway crying after being sworn at and physically pushed out of the San Diego Padres locker room in 1984 while up against a deadline. Smith told ESPN that being denied access was humiliating, saying being barred from the locker room made it look and feel like she was trying to get into someplace she didn't have a right to be, which was obviously not the case. She also told a heartwarming story about first baseman Steve Garvey writing to her rescue, coming out into the hallway to give her the quotes she needed and vowing to stay as long as she needed him, as long as she stopped crying. Utility player Dave Kingman dumped buckets of cold water over Jane Gross's head on two separate occasions in the locker room, and he once sent a rat in a corsage box to Susan Pornoff of the Sacramento Bee. The first woman sports writer for the New York Daily News, Lori Mifflin, was called a by NHL player Tiger Williams, who then picked her up and forcibly removed her from the locker room.
Jarofsky chatted with Eric Zorn, late of the Chicago Tribune. The popular columnist discussed the exodus of talent from the Tribune, the struggles at American newspapers nationwide, and the chaos currently engulfing Chicago City Hall. The Ben Jarofsky Show airs Fridays at noon. Go ahead, Eric. <laughs> I, I feel uh, fairly liberated right now, actually. I feel like it's, it's, um, it's a time where I can get away from the, the grind of three deadlines, three column deadlines a week and to start pursuing other opportunities as they may present themselves. None have so far, <laughs> but it's only been a few days. So, First of all, this is an opportunity. The Ben Jarofsky show. Are you kidding me? Uh, the cash well, notice that I, you notice that I lunged at it. So yeah, he did. he did. He lunged at it. Uh, so all right, let's talk a little bit about the, uh, the decision-making process uh, that you were uh, confronted with what was about a month or so ago uh, that led to you to take the buyout. So lead us through it. What, what literally, what did, was the decision that you had to make? Go ahead. Well, I can, I'll take this back to like 2007 when the buyout offers first really started coming fairly regularly at the Tribune. And, and at that time, I decided, uh, with my wife, Johanna, supporting me the whole way, which is I'm going to stick this out. I'm going to write. I know things are tough in the newspaper business, but I really like this job. And if they're going to fire me, then they'll fire me. And we'll take the chance that I will outlast the buyout terms. Basically, you know, it's, you know the terms of, of these buyouts is that they, they essentially pay you money to go away. Right. They give you a, a certain amount of your salary. And it's, it's fairly generous this time. And um, so I've been turning those down all the way up until February of this year. We had a buyout offer. That was the one that Blair Kamen took uh, on Gary Marks, Uh, two real luminaries at the Tribune. And what happened this time was that we have been feeling this this, uh, looming threat of a takeover by Alden Global Capital. This is a company that has purchased a bunch of newspapers around the country and has uh, basically cut their newsrooms down to uh, bare minimums in most cases. And I was keeping a very close eye on that and wondering what the future was going to hold. Uh, I think it was a Friday that, that the deal kind of finally went through. We kept hoping that maybe some deep pocketed Chicago one would buy the Tribune and there would be, there would be some uh, you know, way, way that we could, we could, uh, when it was, this was being held out as a possibility in Baltimore as well. That, that Alden would not take over the Tribune and that we would be able to continue more or less as we were. And on Friday, the deal finally went all the way through and Alden took full control of the company. Then on Monday, email went out and they offered buyouts to non-union people, uh, which was, uh, they were still working out the details of the buyout offer to union people at the time. But it was clearly like, as soon as they got control of the, of the paper, they decided they were going to cut staff pretty dramatically. And, and then and shortly thereafter, the, the offer to the union came as very similar to the one to management. And this started, of course, everybody worrying and thinking about what the future is going to hold. <clears throat> I took some time to do some sort of deep research into what the role of opinion is at Alden papers around the country, um, papers like the Denver Post, to see do they keep a stable of opinion columnists on staff and what is their prominence at the paper and so on. And my conclusion after looking at that is that really they don't have a lot of appetite for local opinion columns and that they tend to outsource them to 
you know, people like, like David Grising writes a column for the Tribune and you, you know, David, he's a former business columnist for the, for the Tribune. And, and then he moved on and he, he runs the better government association. He writes a column for us and it's, it's a volunteer effort. I am sure he's paid by the better government association to do it, but it, it runs in the Tribune and David's a smart guy and it's a good column. And, and uh, I, I have no problem with that, but, but that is their model is that they find interested people in the community who would love to write a column for free every couple of weeks or so and they and they fill their op-ed pages with that and with syndicated content for the most part so i was looking sort of down the line at this and thinking like i don't think that there's going to be a role for certainly for all of the opinion columns so we have we have a ton or we had a ton i should say at, at the tribune and i was thinking that well you know it's it's probably time to think about uh taking one of these buyout offers my my idea to go down with the ship seemed foolish at that point that they were making a pretty generous offer and I thought well I'm 63 I got time to maybe do some other things and I believe the writing is on the wall I believe there's a target on my back frankly and so I made the decision along with a bunch of my colleagues Mary Schmeek, Steve Chapman, Donnelly Glanton, um, uh, Heidi Stevens and uh, of course John Cass left also so, you know, Rex Hupke did a column today where he says, you know, he's this he's the senior Metro columnist at, at the Tribune now. And of course, my answer to that is yes, but you're also the junior Metro columnist at the Tribune because we don't have any other Metro columnists at the Tribune anymore. So uh, uh, basically, we all we all bailed out at once. And uh, and so that was the decision process. I thought, well, um, you know, this year is going to go fast and I'm not going to be making any money after that, but there are other opportunities out there. And if there's not, you know, I can work on playing some fiddle tunes and I'll still, <laughs> I'll still be happy. So got to work in that jump shot, Eric. All right. Um, by the way, a shout out, let's give a shout out to Rex W. Hupke. It was hilarious. This is not a farewell column. I'm really sorry. So off we go. That's a headline. Uh, Rex Hupke, as Eric pointed out, is the last remaining uh, local columnist at the Chicago Tribune. Uh, and so he did his column as a Q and a, and the first question uh, is, are you taking the buyout? And he goes, and his answer is no. Again, I'm very sorry. And then the second question, is there any way we convince you to take the buyout? Uh, and so it's, t- it's classic Rex Hupke where he makes fun of himself. He's very good at that. And he's a very funny columnist. Uh, Eric, you said something that I took note of and I wrote it down. And I'll follow up and get you uh, to take the deep dive on it. You said, quote, uh, the writing was on the wall. A target on my back. What did you mean by that? A target on your back? Well, I mean that when you are a, a columnist of a certain age, making a certain income at at an Alden newspaper or at a, man, many newspapers these days, is they are really looking to cut salary. They're looking to cut you know, cut their expenses way down so they can continue to make money. And so when you have a bunch of us at the paper who are of a certain age, who are um, making a certain amount of money, and they can dramatically cut their payroll by getting rid of us. Uh, it, it was almost like this particular buyout offer had my name on it. You know, it was like, Hey, you know, you've been around a long time. We got a lot of money for you if you want to walk out the door. And I'm thinking, well, maybe, maybe, yeah, maybe it's time to do that. And, um, you know, it wasn't easy because I got to say, I mean, honestly, I, I love the job. I love being a columnist and I know you love being a columnist. You love having a voice. You love, and it's, and it's, 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 difficult sometimes it's always challenging but boy maybe the best job in the world to, have, to be a columnist to have an audience to interact with an audience to start conversations to to make people think in new ways about about topics and and uh 
I mean, boy, it's, it, it's a really, really hard job to give up. And it's because you have this connection with the audience and you have this, this opportunity every week, a new opportunity to, to say what you think needs to be said. So it's a really tough, really tough gig to give up. And so that, that made it very difficult. And if, and if they had given me any indication that they'd wanted me to stay, like if they had said, you know, I know it looks like this buyout was written. It looks like it was the Eric Zorn commemorative buyout. It really is. Really, we'd really like you to stay. I, I'd have stayed. I would have taken my chances if I had been given, uh, you know, a nod and a wink. But they don't do that. And yeah. so I, uh, I, I saw the writing on the wall. I saw the target on my back. And I, you know, I, uh, I'm gone. Yeah. Hey there, my producer, are you sick? No, it's allergies. Ah, jeez, you sound like the Trekkers after a three-day marching powder binge. Ugh, I know, it's awful. I know, guys. Well, have you noticed how many episodes start with, I knows a guy, or this dude over here? Uh, no, what's your point? You've never noticed anything weird? Uh, no. Like, I don't have a recorder, and yet these episodes keep appearing. And we seem to keep moving from, ugh, jeez, scenario to scenario. I, I, I mean, do you ever wonder if we're, like, inside a simulation or something? Huh, well, everything seems all right. I mean, uh, we beat the digital land in that simulation back in that size matter 71, and, and that was like 17 episodes ago if I can do Matt right. I mean, that's what I mean. We keep talking in episodes and making references no one cares about. Listen, Jess, I got what's going to cure your allergies, I swear. Now you got to come see this guy. I'm just, this is just going to be a mess of sound effects and then a jump cut. Do you see what I mean? I mean, how did we even get here? We we walked the entire way from the co-pro. You got a burrito at Martinez and I didn't even get a bite, so I don't even... Oh, yeah, I still have that half in my pocket. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Hand-warming burrito. Anyway, this is Pooper's place. Uh, Everyone in Undertown swears by him. His name is what? I don't know, like Steve or something, but uh, we all could call him Poopers. I'll, you'll see why. I'm not super sure about this, Kyle. Oh, whoa, 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 what is that smell? That is the medicines. Hey, Poops, what's going oh, on? God, it smells like Sasquatch's socks died in here. That's the natural medicines. My producer, he has got some allergies. Maybe you could, uh... The allergies of Bridgeport. Yes, the dab and the trees and the bowl. Ugh, seriously, what is that smell? It is a secret substance blended right here of all natural excretions. Just, I'm telling you, I had cancer and poopers, he cleared it right up. I cannot believe that. Let me just smear a little of this here and here under your nostrils. Just breathe deep. Oh, it smells awful. That's the medication. Oh, I think I'm going to puke. Oh, my God. Oh. Oh. Hey. Wait a minute. I stopped sneezing. You just put a little of this on your lip every morning for a few minutes and no more allergies. What's in it? It's a proprietary blend. I can't believe more people don't use these natural methods. I hate that this is working. I just wish we could spread the message to more people. Well, maybe we can. 
Do you think this is really a good idea? Al Pooper says this is the way he gets the immunity herbs. Uh, by smearing whatever this gross gunk is under people's doors? It's genius. Everyone touches it, they get the immunity. I, I'm just not sure. You're so pedestrian. We're going to be hailed as heroes. I, I'm just not sure. Listen, you take a couple of bags of this, and I'll take a couple of bags of this, and we'll start hitting these door handles. What is this really dog sh- not entirely. Oh my god, I'm gonna be sick. No, you're not. Your allergies uh. are solved. This week on the Biden Files, the Trump Organization is charged with wide-ranging tax fraud, the U.S. economy loads up on jobs, major Russian cyber attacks hit the United States, Trump tries to sue social media, the FBI breaks up another group of gun nuts, and Trump thinks Hitler did a lot of good things. These are the Biden Files. Day 164, July 2nd. The Trump Organization has been criminally charged with running a 15-year scheme to help executives avoid paying taxes by compensating them off the books. The Manhattan District Attorney's Office has accused a top executive, Alan Weisselberg, of dodging taxes on $1.7 million in perks that should have been reported as income. Weisselberg, who has been Trump's long-serving and trusted chief financial officer, was charged with grand larceny and tax fraud. Prosecutors called it a sweeping and audacious illegal payment scheme, and it opened a new front against the embattled former president. The scheme to get secret pay raises while not paying taxes was orchestrated by the most senior executives at the Trump Organization. Meanwhile, Trump issued a statement claiming that Weisselberg was being used as a pawn in a scorched earth attempt to harm the former president. Weisselberg pleaded not guilty, as did an attorney on the Trump Organization's behalf. Trump himself was not charged. 130 countries have endorsed setting a 15% global minimum corporate tax rate. The Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development said the agreement on paying global taxes in countries where their goods or services are sold, even if they have no physical presence there, would generate an estimated $150 billion in additional tax revenue each year. The Supreme Court has struck down a California law that required charities and nonprofits to disclose their top donors. Conservatives had challenged the state's disclosure requirements, saying that information was protected on the First Amendment's freedom of association, claiming the disclosure could lead to harassment. California had said the state attorney general needed that information to investigate complaints of charitable fraud and self-dealing. Day 165, July 3rd. In a surprise, the American economy added 850,000 jobs in June, the largest number added in a month since last August. President Biden said that jump showed his American Rescue Plan bill was proving to the naysayers and doubters that they were wrong. The unemployment rate in America ticked up to 5.9% from 5.8%. Attorney General Merrick Garland suspended all federal executions, saying he had serious concerns. Garland cited the arbitrariness of capital punishment, its disparate impact on people of color, and the troubling number of exonerations in death penalty cases. Garland also ordered a review of whether the drug approved for federal executions poses risks of pain and suffering. Garland's move reverses a stance taken in 2019 after 17 years without executions when then-Attorney General William Barr rushed to execute 13 people on death row. The United States military formally vacated Bagram Airfield in Afghanistan after nearly 20 years. 
That base was the center of the U.S. military's counterterrorism campaign in the nation, with fighter jets, drones, and cargo planes taking off from the runways day and night. The airfield was handed over to the Afghan National Security and Defense Force, ending America's longest foreign war. And Representative Thomas Massey of Kentucky claimed he had been contacted by members of the voluntary military who say they will quit if the COVID vaccine is mandated. He later went on to appear at a press conference with Marjorie Taylor Greene. Military members can't quit, of course, that would be going AWOL, and they already received numerous mandatory vaccinations. Day 166, July 4th. On Independence Day, President Biden hosted a celebration to commemorate the July 4th holiday and herald his administration's progress toward overcoming the pandemic. Biden did miss his stated target of getting at least one dose into the arms of 70% of all Americans, albeit not by much. 67% of citizens in America over 30 have now received at least one dose of the COVID vaccine. Newly released records show top Republicans in Arizona's largest county dodged calls from Trump and his allies in the aftermath of the 2020 election. That was when Trump sought to prevent the certification of Joe Biden's victory. Trump tried to call Clint Hickman, the chairman of the Maricopa County Board of Supervisors, shortly before midnight and hours after news broke of Trump's call with a Georgia Secretary of State. Hickman told the Arizona Republic, which first received the records, that he did not return the call. He said he presumed Trump would try to pressure him to change election results or discuss election conspiracies. Quote, I'm not going to tape a president, so I'm not going to talk to a president. I didn't want to have a very rough call to my home on a Sunday night. And Representative Paul Gosar appeared at a fundraiser featuring Nick Fuente, the leader of a white nationalist group. Gosar, who is a five-term Republican and dentist from Prescott, Arizona, is a vociferous backer of the Stop the Steal movement. In a recent fundraising solicitation, he spread a groundless conspiracy theory that the FBI was behind the January 6th attack. Gosar's increasing ties to racist and far-right fringe organizations and activists suggest they now have found an ally and an advocate in Congress. Gosar previously drew national attention in 2018 when six of his nine siblings endorsed his opponent, warning that his extremist views made him unfit for government. Day 167, July 5th. President Biden endorsed major changes to the military justice system. Those changes, which are supported by the Pentagon, would remove investigating and prosecuting sexual assault cases from the chain of command. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin chose to work with Congress on overhauling the system, saying in testimony that sexual assault is an abuse of power and an affront to our shared humanity. Biden, however, stopped short of backing an effort to strip military commanders of oversight of all major crimes. Hundreds of American businesses have been hit by a major cyber attack, which is suspected to have been carried out by a Russian-linked gang. The FBI last month accused the same group of paralyzing operations at JBS, the world's largest meat supplier. In a related attack, Sweden saw its largest grocer paralyzed by the attack. Eleven men were taken into custody near Boston after a lengthy standoff between police and a group of heavily armed men who claimed to be part of a separatist group. The standoff shut down part of a highway for several hours and prompted a local shelter-in-place order. The men, who appeared to be live-streaming the standoff on YouTube, eventually surrendered. The state police said the men had referred to themselves as a militia and represented an offshoot of the anti-government sovereign citizens movement. Day 168, July 6th. A major hack of American companies appears to have exploited multiple vulnerabilities in IT management software made by a company based in Miami. The FBI called the attack on companies using software made by Kaseya a sophisticated weaponized attack with ransomware. 
The Russia-based Revel has demanded at least $70 million in Bitcoin for a universal decryptor, according to cybersecurity experts. At least 1,000 companies nationwide have been affected. American internet companies warned Hong Kong's government that proposed changes to the city's data protection laws could result in tech companies shutting off their service. The standoff is the latest between big tech and Hong Kong, where the government has created harsh new rules to control what is set online. Chinese censors have tried to instill broad surveillance and censorship powers. In turn, Google, Apple, and Facebook have balked at providing servers in that area. Afghan soldiers have been driven into neighboring Tajikistan as violence has risen in the country while the Taliban have been making significant gains. The surge came as the U.S., U.K., and their allies withdrew after 20 years. Under a deal with the Taliban, NATO agreed to withdraw all troops in return for a commitment by the militants not to allow any extremist group to operate in the areas they control. The Taliban, however, did not agree to stop fighting Afghan forces and now reportedly control about a third of that nation. American gas prices are expected to increase by at least 20 cents a gallon in the next month as crude prices show no signs of bottoming out. Gas prices have surged since President Biden took office amid a breakdown in talks among OPEC and its allies over whether to expand oil production as travel resumes and global demand recovers. That cartel has been unable to reach a deal despite multiple meetings. Refineries in the United States have also been accused of profit-taking during the surge. And the Pentagon said a major cloud computing contract no longer meets its needs and would solicit bids from Amazon and Microsoft on a future cloud computing contract. The move ends a major squabble over a contract known as JEDI that consumed the Trump administration with accusations the former president improperly blocked Amazon for competing for the bid. The Pentagon indicated it was now likely to buy new technology from both Amazon and Microsoft. Day 169, July 7th. Trump announced two class action lawsuits against Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg and Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey. Trump is completely banned from Twitter and is banned from Facebook for at least another two years. Class action lawsuits would enable him to sue the two tech CEOs on behalf of a broader group of people that he argues have been censored by biased policies. However, to date, Trump and other critics have not presented any substantial evidence that either platform is biased against conservatives and its policies or implementation of them. But Trump's megaphone has been significantly muzzled in light of bans from the platforms, particularly Twitter. Trump has also often sued people in the course of his career, but rarely actually followed through in terms of winning a judgment or even taking cases to trial. He, however, has started fundraising off news of the suit. The FBI infiltrated a group whose members wanted to test homemade bombs, surveil the U.S. Capitol, and secede from the U.S. Court records show the FBI infiltrated a Bible study group in Virginia that after the January 6th riot had members discussing surveilling the Capitol and their wish for secession from the U.S. One member was making Molotov cocktails. And Trump is said to have taken a sudden interest in Ghislaine Maxwell's case as he was considering who to pardon. Maxwell, a close associate of Jeffrey Epstein, is awaiting trial on sex trafficking charges. Epstein died in jail last year while he was awaiting trial on similar charges. Trump was bored by the process and details of pardoning individuals, but was determined to use the power granted to presidents before he departed the White House. He was concerned that Maxwell would tie him to Epstein, who he knew, and repeatedly asked aides, has she said anything about me? Is she going to talk? Will she roll on anybody? Day 170, July 8th. According to a new book by Michael Bender, Trump told his chief of staff that Hitler did a lot of good things. The remarks shocked John Kelly, detailing the former president's stunning disregard for history. 
in a related story just weeks after her first visit to the Holocaust Museum, Marjorie Taylor Greene used the phrase medical brown shirts in describing officials and volunteers who are encouraging Americans to get vaccinated. Russian hackers are accused of breaching a contractor for the Republican National Committee. That is around the same time that Russian cyber criminals launched the single largest global ransomware attack on record. That attack also occurred weeks after a summit between President Vladimir Putin and Joe Biden. Representative Mo Book said in court he can't be sued for inciting the Capitol riot because he is a federal employee. The Alabama Republican pled that he acted as a member of Congress during a speech with Trump on January 6th that urged the overturning of election results. Brooks has been sued by a fellow House member. 56% of Americans say ensuring access to voting is more important than tamping down on voter fraud. 67% of Americans believe democracy in the U.S. is under threat. 59% of Americans believe crime is an extremely serious problem right now in the United States. These are the Biden Files. Mario Smith talked with the Reverend Michael Flager about the hardships facing Chicago. Flager discussed the inertia in City Hall, why so little seems to change, and what he wishes for in a new administration. News from the service entrance with Mario Smith airs Thursdays at 2. Ladies and gentlemen, it is an honor for news from the service entrance to have from St. Sabina, Father Michael Flager. Good afternoon, sir, and thank you so much for being on the show today. Good afternoon, Mario. Glad to be on. There's so much to talk about. I, I am uh, the reason I wanted you on the show. It's a few reasons. One, our mutual friend, Africa Porter, who yes. does so much out here for everybody, um, mentioned you to me one day, just like, you know, have you ever had. Uh, Father Mike on your show. I'm like, no, I'd love to do that. She's like, why don't you call him? I'm like, well, Africa, I don't have the same kind of Rolodex you got. Uh, but call you, I did. And there's so much going on in our city. Um, yes, and I, I see consistent faces, you being one of them, trying very hard to change the vibration of this town so we can get it back to where our people feel safe and, and protected. Um I really, my, my sole purpose is to find out from you, what can we do? How can we work together? How can all of us work together to change this tide? And I have some other questions, but first, the, the city is, it, it, and, and this is going to sound harsh, to avoid this from becoming a summer of blood, how do we change this vibration and make Chicago better? Well, first of all, Mario, I think, and I asked yesterday for um, that the governor of Illinois do what the governor of New York did. And the governor of New York on um, the day before yesterday called a, for a state of emergency due to the gun violence. Um, and I asked the governor here to do the same thing, as well as not only bring, that would bring in funds to help reverse this curse of gun violence we got going on, but also to... Um, call for a summit of both the political leaders, the governor, the mayor, the state's attorney, the Cook County Board President, and then the ground, the young people, and those in organizations working on the street every day to come together, get up in a room, lock the doors, and come up with a strategy and a plan. Because what we don't have in Chicago that's very frustrating to me, I think there's a lot of people doing a lot of good things. But the fact is there's no coordination. Nobody knows what anybody else is doing. And um, there's no comprehensive plan for the city. You know, and we keep hearing that um, 
you know, people, uh, we can't police our way out of this, but the only thing we keep hearing about is police. And we need to have a comprehensive plan that has the funding, the support, the, the connectedness um, together. Um, we constantly keep hearing those 15 particular areas where the most violence is, is going on. Well, then I'm wondering why in those 15 areas we're not calling for a town hall meeting to bring people together in those areas because each are a little different and come up with the police, the, the organizations, the faith leaders, the young folks in the street, um, and, and community residents come up with a structure, a strategy for their particular area, what they're going to do. We need to reorganize um, block clubs that have been just let go in the city. Uh, we need to uh, start a campaign and also training and support for parents and guardians who feel like they don't know what to do. If a parent now doesn't know what to do with their child or doesn't have, needs help with their child, there's no place to call. There's nothing to do, um, and, and they need help for it. We need to, you know, hold the beat cops responsible. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I remember that thing that happened over that warehouse where was a mass shooting over on uh, uh, South Chicago. And um, residents over there told me days after we saw all these cars gathering, we saw the people going, we knew something's going on there, that's a car repair place, and there's all these people going there. Well, if the residents saw it, I'm wondering if this is your beat, and you're driving around your beat consistently, and you're seeing cars, and you're seeing people that ordinarily are not going to go into a car repair shop, we could have prevented that. Um, and so we've got to be on top of it in their beat. I do not like the strategy that um, Superintendent Brown has of this this um, centralized, so they send people into different places at different times. Those police are sending in as a centralized unit have no relationship, no connection, don't even know that district. So they're, they're, they're not a lot of help except for um, suppression, but not of any prevention. And so I just think I could go on and on about all kinds of things that I think need to be happening. Um, but the most important is we need to acknowledge we have a, a state of emergency in this city. Last weekend, they said 400 people were shot nationally. A mm. hundred of those were in Chicago. Right. One quarter of the nation's shootings happen in our city. Um, so we we need to call acknowledge the condition we have, call a state of emergency, call for some people to come together and come up with a strategy and plan. I mean, we're already in second week of July. Yeah. Um, <laughs> something's got to be done now. We don't have time to wait. And we got Labor Day weekend coming ahead of us. Are we just going to, again, say, oh, this is going to be another horrible weekend because Labor Day weekend was bad. Um, this is a crisis, and we got to treat it. I say treat it the same way we did COVID. With COVID, it was amazing to me. We had state, city, federal county everybody every day was on this thing there was this we're all in all in illinois right a major 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 aggressive approach strategy and the rest well if we could do that with covid why can't we do that with violence i i have to ask because as a as a a citizen of chicago since 1975 mm-hmm. and and as a person who is really on the in terms of hearing about things that are happening what is it that our mayor could do and not just this mayor but the past ones what could they have done what can what is it, it, it the role of the mayor in this what is it and and how can that mayor do their job better to help 
put those policies and things in place? Well, I think one of the things is this, that we don't have, we're always reacting to what we got going on. There ought to be an immediate strategy right now to stop, stop this bloodshed. But also, we need to have like a 10-year plan. I don't care who the superintendent is. I don't care who the mayor is. There's got to be a long-term plan to turn this around in Chicago and make it the kind of city it should be. But it seems like, you know, every mayor that comes in, they say what they're going to do. We get disappointed, and we get angry. But meanwhile, the numbers continue. So I think that, you know, um, this mayor or any mayor that's in office or any governor needs to immediately deal with the, the trauma right now and the crisis, but then put together a 10-year strategy and now to not just lower gun violence, you know, 10% or 15%, and gun violence in the city. Now, we also have to push federally because the federal gun laws have to be changed. Uh, we've got to close the loopholes. We've got to ban assault weapons and high magazine uh, guns. We've got to make sure that everybody goes through a background check, whether it's at a gun show or private selling. It ought to be a law that's put in place. Um, you know, and we, we have Democrats who are saying they want to do this, and we have now the Senate and the House and a Democratic president. Well, let's do it. Yeah, what is stopping us from doing it? Exactly. Yeah. Um, we're with Father Michael Flager uh, here on News from the Service Entrance, the radio show on 105.5 FM. Lumpin' Radio. Uh, Father Mike, I was on the air last week when the young lady got shot on 79th in Maryland. Um, I have been hearing and, and, and grieving over our children being killed in Chicago. I've, I cannot, I've lived here my entire life, born and raised. I cannot remember a time ever where it was like this. I thought it was bad about 14 years ago when Janila Watkins uh, right. was shot. She was six months old. And one-month-old baby's getting killed and, and hit with bullets and whatnot now. Where are we socially and culturally, from your, in your opinion, um, and why is it? Because it can't all be the police. It can't no. all be a mysterious group of, of, of white people running through these black neighborhoods killing people. What is it, socially and culturally, that is missing? Well, I think it's a number of things. I think it's the opportunities, <coughs> excuse me, for our young people that are not there. I think we're not teaching um, in our schools conflict resolution and training young people to grow up with um, peacemaking. Excuse me one second with peacemaking as part of their agenda, uh, agenda. I think we're not doing it at home. Um, I think we're not holding ourselves as adults responsible enough both in the house and on the block. We live in this very, you know, isolated day when we have um, people don't know their neighbors on the block. We've got to reconnect the blocks and realize that we need to, we're in this together. Um, I think the churches have failed in their responsibility of of, of developing uh, folks' understanding that this is the garden placed in our hands, according to our scriptures, and we're not making it fruitful. We're not we're not tied, uh, taking care of it. So, I think it's it's 
we're all failing in our responsibility mm. from the home, the school, the church, <coughs> the neighborhood. <coughs> but we're not we're not doing the things we should be doing to make sure our children grow up, are trained up, are given the information, and also are cared for by the village. Yeah. We've lost the village. Do you think it's is is uh, you mentioned earlier about um a, a summit of sorts um and i i i have not been uh, admittedly this past weekend has been long <laughs> right <laughs> so i haven't been keeping up properly with with any plans that you might have do you have any plans to put a summit together to bring well, we're, together well we're um i've got a number of folks since we put this out yesterday or talk about need to call for one we're doing one here in our community we've been we're very aggressive here in, in what we're doing in Auburn Gresham and at St. Sabina. We do our, our walks every Friday night, and, you know, people say, well, what what good is walking? Do? Well, it does a whole lot of good Absolutely. because we're um, out there. We go to areas where the, that past week has been some tension or some gang activity or a shooting. We go there to give support to the people. We go there to help bring people out and get to know each other, talk to each other, to give hope to those who see us out there and say, hey, we can do this. And we give information and resources to um, all the young people out there that we run into about our job program. We hired 400 young people this summer. Uh, our Strong Futures program that works with those with records. You know, um, our learning garden about healthy living and growing. Um, our technology, our social services, our youth programs, and all the different programs we have so we get that information to them, tell them how to get connected to it and where to go. Um, and then we're also um, um, doing block club, you know, parties for the neighborhood. Uh, we offer free counseling to people because so many folks are experiencing from this trauma and depression. Um, we offer events like for the community to pull, bring, again, bring people together, like free skating events, right. uh, day of service to the community. But we're having this town hall meeting to bring people together from adults to police to faith community to young people to sit down, get in a room, and say, what are some things in this area that we need to do immediately or that we can do in the next two years, three years, five years, need to push for to get in place here so that our community can be a safe and a, a flourishing community. Download complete. Now playing Eureka Cast Now. Inspire curiosity. Imagine science. At one point... You were a full-time educator in elementary, middle, high school? I was um, teaching grades K through second. Right. So you were at one point employed um, with the public schools doing um, – what were you teaching at the time? Um, at the time, I was mostly literacy-focused. Okay. Okay. Um, but you were doing that, and then you had this aha uh, moment, this eureka moment, as we like to call it here at Eureka Cast now. Um, and unfortunately, that led you to having to leave your position in the school system, the public school system. Do you want to speak to that? Um, yes, it was um, definitely not a fair situation. Um, after hmm. I witnessed that um, bullying incident, I am um, set out to incorporate better bullying skills in my classroom for the um, popular kids. And um, unfortunately, um, my institution came one day, the principal, and was um, focused on the fact that my um, bullying lessons weren't meeting common core needs, uh, weren't were, were not meeting current student needs, hmm. and um, we're crossing ethical grounds, which I think was the most um, 
was the most false claim. Generally. Right. Um, so, for example, um, they were we had a lesson on history, which you know, when are kids going to when are kids going to use the history of you know the Declaration of Independence? Uh, probably never. You know, we so I, I said focused on. Um, the history of the word "cuck" and how to use the word "cuck." Oh, and um, they didn't like that. They didn't, they were um, they the, said this had no value, that it was not appropriate, and um, the unfortunately, it was either, you know, I saw the writing on the wall. It was I had to leave, mm. or they were going to fire me. So you know, I took the hit and I took my skills elsewhere. Eureka Cast Now broadcasting Saturdays eight to nine p.m. on Lumpen Radio. The Lumpen Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is overseen by Jamie Trecker, voiceovers by Shanna Van Volt, additional production by Cole Eisenberg, Julie Wu, Sergio Rodriguez, Neil Gaynor, Lane Gerbig, Alexander Jerry, John Piotrowski, Ari Shellist, and Annie Klein. Live music production by Ari Shellist. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. The Lumpen Radio Sting is by Dan Jugal. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. Yeah.